Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I wake up every morning thinking that I'm working to make the world a better place because I'm advocating for programs like Pell Grants that expand access um, to education and funding for the research agencies to make innovative, life-changing technology. given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. This week we're broadcasting to you from the front page, which is near DuPont Circle in DC. It's been around going on 45 years. It's an old institution for those of us who've ever worked downtown. It gets a lot of downtown traffic. It's known for a great happy hour. In fact, it was listed as best happy hour in DC a few years ago. Great events. They try to draw people in with fun things like Taco Thursday, where the tacos are free, folks. Uh, they have DJ and dancing on some nights. And in 2014, Open Table voted the front page as the best bottomless brunch in the country, which is hard wow. for me to imagine. I never knew they had brunch here in the first place, but that comes from not being downtown on the weekend. But it's also in the shadow of what is the epicenter in higher education policy. We are literally across the street from a building known as One DuPont Circle, or One DuPont for those in higher ed. This is a home for a lot of organizations that are focused on higher ed policy, that work with decision makers to protect and watch out for institutions of all walks of life and students that attend those institutions. One of the premier higher ed organizations in town. It's actually the most comprehensive group by a long shot. It's the American Council for Education. And we're joined today by one of the individuals who is literally on the front line of higher education policy for ACE, Sarah Spreitzer. Sarah, welcome so much. Cheers. Thanks for having me, Bill. So let me just dive into a little bit about what ACE is about. I mean, I know they represent more than 1,700 colleges, universities. Basically, if you can think of an accredited college or university in this country, they're most likely going to be a member of ACE, and their presidents are going to be taking an active role in this. I think I saw on your website that two out of three higher education degree-seeking students are represented by ACE members. That's right, and we actually represent the presidents of those institutions. So we're one of the presidential associations, meaning that our pre- that our members are actually the institutions and the presidents. So this, tell me 
you a little bit about that distinction as opposed to representing the institution overall? Well, you know, there's a lot of other higher education associations out there that we also work with very closely, and many of them are actually also members of ACE. But you might have NASFA, which is the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators, and they represent the financial aid directors on a campus, gotcha. whereas um, ourselves, um, you know, AAU, uh, APLU, the Association of Public and Land Grant Universities, um, ASCU, who are the state colleges and universities, NICU, the independent colleges, and AACC, the community colleges, they are also presidential um, organizations. And so we coordinate a lot with them. Um, usually when you refer to all of them, you call them the six. Yeah, or the six-pack people. Right, the six-pack. Six exactly. Which is appropriate for AAU politics. I yeah. Your mission statement on the website I thought was very informative, so I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about what this means. Because the way it goes is ACE mobilizes the higher ed community to shape effective public policy and foster innovative, high-quality practice. Mm -hmm. So that does put you guys on the front line and advocating, doesn't it? Yeah, and you know, government relations is just one part of ACE, so I didn't fully appreciate the many different parts of ACE um, before I started working there, but we also have an arm that does, you know, professional development for, for a provost or an administrator who's hoping to one day be a president of an institution. Um, we do a lot of work with uh, institutions that are looking to grow international partnerships. Um, we also have a center for policy and research studies, which is sort of the more think tank side. Okay. Um, and so GR is, is, an, is an important part of it. I would say the most important part of it. Well, of course, but as we the are, Director of Government uh, we are, and Public Affairs, right, you should. We are just uh, one piece of ACE. So within that big realm you just mm -hmm. mentioned, how big is your staff? You know, I'm not really sure. I know it's over 100 people. 100 people yeah. in government and public affairs. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. In government yeah, yeah. and public affairs? Right. Sorry. Uh, the full ACE staff. Um, you know, in government relations, we actually have our senior vice president, Terry Hartall. Mm -hmm. um, then there's an assistant vice president and then four directors. Okay. Um, and then Very within public size. affairs, yeah, within public affairs, it's around the same size, around five. So I'd say our whole department is around 10 people. So you got 10 people focused on government and public affairs. But you represent more than 1,700 presidents of colleges and universities. How do you manage their needs, their interests, and then mm -hmm. craft ACE's message to take to decision makers? Well, a lot of our issues are driven with what our institutions worried about and what are they hearing about. And uh, you know, we we separate out the issues into different portfolios. So my portfolio is probably the most fungible of all of them, um, the most squishy because I have a lot of overlap with the other directors. But my portfolio involves um, international students immigration issues, um, security issues, funding for research, research policy. Nothing that's important or yeah, ongoing right now. That's, yeah, none of the big important <laughs> issues. Um, and then, you know, we have other people. There's another director that, that solely folks, focuses on um, student aid, um, higher education regulations. Um, we have somebody else who does veterans education. Um, and then we have somebody who does, you know, labor and employment law um, and also looks at um, you know, Medicare, Medicaid issues that might touch on, um, you know, higher ed. So I was being a bit facetious with that comment, but you really are dealing with some of the hot topic issues that higher ed can, can 
cares about these days, and yet you may not necessarily think of these as higher education issues. You mentioned national security. Give us yeah. an example of why that's important to ACE members. Yeah, so right now we're seeing a real shift in the relationship between the United States and China specifically. Also some, some issues that are coming up with uh, Russia, right, where we have these very uh, aggressive actions being undertaken by a foreign government who clearly want to surpass us in many different areas, but specifically maybe in technological innovation. And so what we are finding is that they are doing that um, sometimes through espionage, sometimes through you know, the wholesale stealing of intellectual property. Um, we all, there are also a lot of concerns regarding soft power. Explain that. Um, soft power is when you're trying to shape the narrative mm -hmm. around, say, a foreign government um, by sort of uh, pushing your story above others um, and really working to kind of um, get in there and say, well, you may not know the whole story, so here's some additional things, or maybe even suppressing um, some topics that may not show you in the best light. So there's an element of spin to soft power. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and it's, and it's and used by a lot of countries. Yeah, have you seen specific examples on campuses where soft power is at play? So there's been a lot of concern right now with Confucius Institutes, which are partnerships formed between an institution of higher education and um, the Chinese Ministry of Education and they're all there there's about 90 throughout the US they all have different missions but really the purpose of all of them is to bring Chinese culture Chinese language instruction to a broader community whether it's um, the campus or whether it's the broader uh, surrounding community sometimes even the k-12 schools and you know in many respects they're great programs uh, many times the institutions couldn't have such a focus without the funding that they're getting from the Chinese government. But unfortunately, there have been examples where there has been um, a push by, uh, you know, the Chinese um, government to suppress these institutions talking about the three T's. And you, you know, Tibet, Tiananmen. To the government. Well, the mostly because it's being directed by Hanban. Which ha which is um, you know part of the Chinese um, education ministry. Got it. Okay, so you've identified an issue like this, and let's dive a little deeper into how you then turn that into a representation of your member presidents and yeah. institutions. So, how, on a regular basis, how are you reaching out to the, the membership to one identify the issue, but two then find out how to translate that into a message before a decision maker. Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of our job is informing our members when something becomes an issue for Congress or the administration. And so we've done a lot to try and elevate this issue for our members. So we've invited the FBI to come talk to institutions that have Confucius Institutes. We've sent a bunch of letters to our members to say this is an ongoing concern and here are some of the best practices. Um, that you can do, you know, review your MOU that you may have with China. Um, there's a big concern on transparency, so try and post your MOU online so anybody can see it. Um, and so, you know, that's part of our job is identifying these are the things that are happening here. Here's how you can respond. But sometimes, you know, then we'll we'll receive feedback from the institution. Well, we understand there are concerns, but that's not that's not what's happening on our campus. 
here's an example of what's going on on our campus and why we don't think it's a problem. And then it's up to us to take that information back up to Congress to say, actually, you guys have the story a little wrong, and we here's some good examples of what's going on. So imagine that process. You can't always capture every single member, and sometimes there might be some contrarian views. You have to have some process internally to filter through that. Well, you know, we represent, because we represent such a broad range of institutions, there is sometimes conversations about, you know, whether or not we can support something that, say, only helps one section of our membership. Because, you know, we're not like AAU, we don't represent just the research institutions. Sure. So we're a lot broader. So I'd say sometimes our message is a a little more broad than some of the other associations. Okay, so you have a little bit of leeway then to fashion a message around that ambiguity, you might say. Yes. Where you can come in and say, do you find it helpful, let me put it this way, do you find it helpful to go into those conversations and say, most of our members, or that's, you know, it's not a, you, we can't paint with a broad brush, but a lot of our members are seeing this happen. Yes. Yeah. And do, yeah. do you think the decision makers find that approach helpful? Yeah, and I think they also find it really helpful when we raise this is how it's going to impact a four-year institution versus this is how it's going to impact a two-year institution. You know, sometimes when we've seen proposals um, regarding like college scorecards or graduation rates or things like that, it's all well and good for the research universities, but the institutions that might get hit are the community colleges. And those are obviously really important to members. And, um, you know, especially in their home districts. Yeah. And I assume that you're not doing this all alone. I mean, you obviously have more staff at ACE. They're helping to inform decision makers around town. But do you rely on the membership? Oh, yes, very much so. So we rely on them to provide feedback. So, you know, we just went through um, the rulemaking process or proposed rule around Title IX, uh, which was focused on campus sexual assault. Um, and ACE submitted very broad community comments that we had a lot of signatories from other um, higher ed associations and they're really really good comments we got a, a lot of um, good feedback from our member institutions but the reason is is that we had a working group you know with institutional members okay. kind of going through everything that we were writing down and trying to understand how is this really going to impact all types of different institutions and you're doing that process remotely most times so conference calls email yeah a lot of time yeah because not every higher ed institution has an office in washington True. Sometimes when it's a really important issue, though, we'll convene like an all-day meeting, give, give people a month or two-month advance notice so that they can fly out here, Good. especially so it's, it's when it's something that's important. Right? Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. And then they will go see their members or yeah. others they might have a relationship yep. with, visit with the staff and all these offices. Yep. Okay. Tack on other DC business, yeah. as well as meeting with us at ACE. Oh, I'm sure there's plenty to keep a president busy when they come to town. And a part of that process has to be the regulatory agencies, the funding agencies, and even the White House. Yeah, so one of the things ACE does a lot of is we work a lot on the higher ed regulations with the Department of Education. And so, you know, we just went through negotiated rulemaking. Um, and uh, my boss, uh, Terry Hartle, was actually one of the negotiators. And it was a rare negotiated rulemaking process because they actually reached consensus, which is. <laughs> Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present 
If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Uh, yeah. A rare thing in town. Yeah. <laughs> so, when a, uh, so you've talked about having your institutions engaged on a regular basis, phone, emails, workshops, daily we, meetings, yeah. and the fly-in. And we have regular newsletters, so we yeah. have a weekly newsletter that goes out to the presidents. Yeah. yeah, so we have a regular newsletter that goes out to our presidents every Friday when Congress is in session, um, and we work really closely with our public affairs colleagues to write that. Um, and then we do like a, 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 an update on Wednesday that goes to a much broader audience that's more high level to kind of flag issues that are coming up. Um, we have a blog series. Our public affairs staff is always working on kind of op-eds that our president can be writing, um, sometimes with other member presidents that we can get placed okay. to kind of raise these issues with more of a national audience. So your target for those types of communications are not just the member institutions. No. You're also targeting decision makers here in town. Correct. Yeah, and that's by what do you find is the most effective way to do that? Does do people go read the blog? Can you track? Do you get metrics on that sort of um, thing? We do have metrics on how often I think our newsletter gets opened. Okay. Um, you know, with the with with the blog or like even with op eds, I find them incredibly useful because when I go to talk to a staff member and they're like, you know, can you summarize your position? I can just email them the blog mm-hmm. or the op ed or something we've written. Um, and so that's really useful. You're spending a lot of time, I'm sure, creating these messages with your member institutions. And I know there's no such thing as a typical week for an advocate here in the Right. But on average, can you postulate on what amount of time you spend during a week internal communications, crafting message, finding out when the institutions meet? versus how much time you're actually talking to a decision maker. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's really hard to say because, as you said, every week is different. And also, in this world, you don't know kind of what sort of policy decisions are going to be announced. Um, So this week, we're expecting the White House to make some big announcement regarding immigration and some changes to merit-based immigration. And if you had asked me last week, I had no idea that that was sort of on the horizon. And so um, a lot of what I've been working on this week has been around that, including meetings with decision makers, um, crafting a possible statement that will come out after the White House rolls out their their proposed policy, um, and then communicating with our members, so writing up summaries and talking about what may be included. When people think about lobbies or advocates here in town, it tends to be kind of the fat cat image, the corrupt individual, corporate shill. Going to lots of fundraisers. Going to lots of yeah. giving pack money, left yeah. and right, charitable donations. And um, you know, I've done that in the past. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> but people don't always realize just how extensive the advocacy community is here in town. Yeah. I mean, people may not realize that higher ed needs a voice here in town. 
how do you yeah, most, manage that? Yeah, most people don't realize that, you know, higher education associations, nonprofits, um, individual institutions of higher education, you know, your college where you're an alum from, uh, most likely has some sort of representation in Washington, D.C. And, you know, we lobby on issues that I think most people don't think that there's people out there speaking up for them. So we lobby for, for increased funding for student aid programs, for Pell Grants. Um, we lobby for more research funding for the National Institutes of Health, for the National Science Foundation. So, you know, we're often referred to um, like as white hat lobbyists, you know, we're like the good guys. Um, I don't know if everybody would agree with that, um, but you know, I, I wake up every morning thinking that I'm working to make the world a better place because I'm advocating for programs like Pell Grants that expand access um, to education and funding for the research agencies to make innovative, life-changing technology. Well, you should feel good about that. I mean, you're yeah. not out here defending the latest oil rig spill or someone raping the land. Well, and it is, it, you know, it is different because you don't have kind of those topics. It's not a, it's not a, a pay-to-play type thing where, where you don't know what the topic is and it's, it's basically only coming to you because somebody's paying you to advocate for it. Um, most people who work in this business, I think, care deeply care deeply about the higher education issues we work on. Yeah, and yet with some 10 to 12,000 registered lobbyists that we yeah. know about here in town, a lot of them are paid mm -hmm. to play, like you suggest, but how does a higher ed lobbyist get noticed in that morass of voices? Well, so institutions of higher ed, I think, are really important to members of Congress. Most uh, districts will have at least one institution of higher education. Maybe it's not a four-year institution, but it's a two-year institution. Um, we're often uh, the largest employer, sometimes uh, one of the largest employers in a congressional district. And so, um, and then we'll, we, you know, a lot of the constituents will either go to school um, at the institution or will work for the institution. And so usually that gives us entry into any um, congressional office. You know, it's something that I know a lot of advocates from all walks of life pay attention to is what is that personal connection with the yeah. decision maker. And so from a higher ed perspective, you all are looking at who's an alum of what, yep. who has uh, which institution in their district, who cares about the economic development impact. Is there, are there other factors that I'm missing there when you look at how to build where, that connection? Where they're sending their kids to college. Where they're sending their kids. Um, and then, you know, you get into uh, touchy topics like tuition, how much they're paying in yeah, tuition well, for their kid, and, and the decision of where to send their kid to college. I mean, there's a lot of congressional members that are parents that are considering those questions. And so, you know, they're usually really educated on, on higher ed and, and a lot of the topics that we deal with all the time. So this is the portion of the podcast where I like to ask my guest perks about their personal journey. Oh, sure. And how they've gotten to this point in their professional development. You have been a higher education advocate, lobbyist. And let me just, I notice you own the term lobbyist. You oh, yeah. I've been, I've been registered for 19 years. Right. So next year will be my 20th year as a registered a lobbyist. seasoned veteran, as they say. That's right. So you didn't come to town to do that. Okay. No. What brought no, you to I DC? didn't. So I, um, within the higher ed community, um, I'm, I'm kind of known as having one of the most unique stories. I actually moved 
um, to Washington, D.C. from the Midwest to get my master's in medieval archaeology. Medieval archaeology, not I just know. medieval studies. No, medieval archaeology. And part of the reason I did that was I was um, a Pell Grant student when I did my undergraduate. I transferred from a community college um, to my four-year institution. Um, I came from you know, a Rust Belt town where a lot of the industry was leaving, the manufacturing sure, jobs, sure. things like that. Yeah. Um, and when I got to my four-year institution, I realized that education was going to help me kind of move out of that situation and create new pathways for myself. Um, my mom was a teacher. She believes a lot in education. Um, my dad went and got his associate's degree under the GI Bill when he was unemployed. Uh, and so, um, you know, education meant a lot to my family. Um, and so when I finished with my bachelor's, I thought, well, all I really want to do is stay in higher education. I want to become a faculty member. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that, that was my dream. Um, and unfortunately, once I started my master's, I realized uh, maybe I don't actually want to, you know, publish or perish, uh, you know, look for a faculty job for so many years. Um, you know, I was really the only one in my family to go on and do an academic master's, and that was really difficult um, to find that path and to understand, um, you know, how do you get a PhD in the humanities? Um, but I think actually my master's serves me really well because it gave me an opportunity to do a lot of public speaking. I was always presenting papers. Um, I had to sell myself to you know people that were interested in giving me a grant or working on a site, an archaeological site. And so I had to learn how to sort of present myself, present my argument. Um, and so those are all skills that I use today. But then you know once I finished my master's, I was unsure whether or not I was going to go on for my PhD. I thought I would take some time off and stick around in Washington, D.C., which I had never been to Washington, D.C. until I moved out here. Is that right? I had no interest in politics. I always voted. Um, I, you know, I voted as soon as I turned 18. I was always a very educated voter, but I don't, I, I don't actually like politics. Um, I like the people in politics, but I'm not a political person. You know, I hear that from advocates uh, more so than you might imagine. Really? Some I, are real political wonks. Some yeah. are in it just for the policy interest and some just because they find it a natural way to communicate with people and do yeah. something that they care about. Yeah, so I never worked on a campaign. I never worked on the Hill. And I basically fell into um, my first higher ed job was a short-term stint with the University of California's DC office. Um, you know, when our mutual friend Scott Sadeth ran the office and there was a bunch of other people there. and. Um, I was really inspired by what they did on a daily basis, and I thought, wow, I never even realized there were people advocating for these programs that I care a lot about, you know, funding for the NSF, the National Endowment for Humanities, for Pell Grants, and I thought, this, this seems really interesting. And so I was hired um, at the University of Washington. Um, in their federal relations office. And so there I, are two institutions you had no personal connection no, to? No, no personal connection to. Um, and I was at the University of Washington for about eight years. Um, and when I left, I was the assistant director. I had a great mentor there, Barbara Perry. Um, she was fabulous. She had worked at a bunch of different institutions. Um, and I really just cut my teeth there and uh, enjoyed every second of it. So back up to that moment when you applied for that job 
at University of Washington, D.C. office. What was, do you think was the differentiator for you? Why do you think you got that job? Um, you know, some of it is I think that I had a more interesting background. Okay. Right? I wasn't, I wasn't the same as everybody else, kind of, who had just done an LC job on the Hill and was looking for the next thing. It was also a very junior position, so I think most people, when they're coming off the Hill, are looking for something a little more senior. Right. Um, and so I was able to really, like, prove myself in that, in that job. So we were going through the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, um, Senator Murray. Uh, was she wasn't yet a uh, ranking member on the committee but she was very senior on the help committee and so I developed relationships with the staff and worked really closely with them on the reauthorization which also allowed me to take um, a leadership role within our larger higher education community and that was kind of how I, I made my reputation. Well proving once again you don't have to come to town with a poli-sci background to get involved in this sort of engagement and policy. Decisions. Yeah I think it's you know I think it's more important to be really you know passionate about the issues mm -hmm. and maybe in fact to have personal experience with the issues um, so I tell people, you know, that I was a Pell Grant student. I still remember what my financial aid letter looked like yep. that I got from my um, undergraduate institution when when I would get it. Had my my family's estimated family contribution. And I still remember how they packaged the aid. You know, I remember transferring my credits from my community college mm -hmm. to my four-year institution, and that's uh, one of those policy issues that we deal with. Um, is transfer credit issues and so I'm often able to sort of reflect back on my experience even though it was you know many years ago but um, you know those types of things uh, inspire me to like work on these issues and I think if you have some of that personal experience and you care deeply about the issues um, it doesn't matter what your degree is in. So you go from the University of Washington office to one of the premier higher ed lobbying firms in town, Lewisburg. Right. Had that had to be a complete change in MO for you? I imagine the, your days just flipped on their head sometimes. Yeah, well, you know, at that point, I was kind of committed to this being my career. Mm -hmm. And um, you're right, they are, they are a great lobbying firm, um, especially in respect to representing institutions of higher ed. And I was looking for experience working with different types of institutions, so I'd only worked for a four-year public. Um, I wanted to see what it was like working for a private institution. Um, they also do a lot of strategy a lot of strategic planning mm -hmm. and so I kind of wanted to go through that process and so while I was at Lewis Burke I worked with a lot of different institutions which was great you know across the country so I got to see a lot of different types of colleges and universities. And yet after a period of time there you end up running a higher ed office in town. Well so then my my goal was always to be a director okay. of an office and so I was hired to open the University of Missouri Systems office which was interesting because the University of Missouri System has four campuses and they're all very unique um, and slightly different so it was like representing uh, four different types of institutions that all had kind of a common, uh, you know, common ground, but um, they were all very different and individual. Cool. And now to ACE. And now, yeah, and now at ACE. And ACE, I've, I've really loved it. You know, it's similar um, to Lewis Burke and the system in that it's a lot of different types of institutions um, that you have to, you know, remember uh, something that, that may 
be helpful to one type of institution it may be harmful to another type and so you're always kind of considering uh, you know whether or not this is actually helpful for higher ed in general um, but I do really enjoy it I, I love working with all of my colleagues that I've I've met and um, developed over my years in higher ed um, you know people within the world of higher ed they never actually leave they just kind of switch <laughs> institutions yeah, I mean common, you know this we have a lot of colleagues that have kind of um, you know have done this for the past 20 years and and um, have stayed in it but switched institutions a couple times. So, you know, we're a pretty close group and um, I think we're a lot of fun to work with. Well, that's certainly been my experience over the years. And what a great way to wrap it up because I think that is about all the time we have for this episode of Any Proof Politics. I want to thank Sarah Spreitzer for being our guest today. And remember kids, no matter what you think about politics in DC these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's still room to fill your drink. Cheers. Thanks, Will. Cheers. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.